Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. The Nicene Creed. What do Christians believe? Lesson 3. The Problem of Evil. This is the third uh, lesson in our 10-week Bible study on the Creed that we recite every Sunday in church. And the first week we talked about why we have the Creed in the first place. What is the function and the role of the Creed? Uh, Why do we need the Creed if we have uh, God's words in Scripture? Uh, And my answer to that question was that the creed is not like a supplement to scripture. It doesn't add anything that's been missing in scripture. The creed rather uh, summarizes very succinctly what scripture is about, which is the person of Jesus Christ uh, and what he has taught us about God, about himself, about the Holy Spirit and about ourselves. The first line in the creed is, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So last week, we talked about why Christians believe that there's a God. Why do we say that God exists? Why do we believe that God exists? And I tried to show, uh, philosophically, why it is that we believe that there's a God. Because this world that we see, and we ourselves, do not exist of our own power. We exist, we're here, but... We're not responsible for the fact that we exist. We didn't do anything in order to come into existence. We can't do anything to make sure that we stay in existence for a second longer. Everything that we see out there could go out of existence. There would be nothing impossible about that. So we see that the world exists, but it's living on borrowed existence, so to speak. You know, it has existence, but not of its own power. So if it's borrowed, that has to, there, there means there has to be a lender. The lender of existence to everything you know, who's like the bank who has money on its own but can lend money to other people. The lender of existence to everything whatsoever is God. So God exists of his own power. He is uncreated. Uh, Nothing caused him to exist. He doesn't, uh, his existence is never in any threat. Nothing can put him out of existence. Everything exists through him. And God is the cause of everything. So God makes us to exist as well. He gives us existence even in this very moment. He gives us life and breath and existence. Now, out of all the things we know about God from Scripture and also just, you know, through the power of our reason, we know, for example, that he is all-powerful because God is the source of everything. He causes everything to happen. He causes everything to be. And we know that he has all power. Nothing is possible except through him. And we also know that since God is the cause of everything, therefore nothing is hidden from him. He is omniscient, as the philosophers say. He knows everything. Right? There's nothing hidden from him, just like, for example, there might be things hidden from us because we're limited, because we are not responsible for everything that happens. We are not the causes of everything. So God is omnipotent and he's omniscient. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Now, there is another quality that God has, that we believe God has as Christians, and yet this one is more controversial. And why is it more controversial? Because a lot of times... Uh, our experience seems to suggest otherwise. And that is that God is good and just. So we as Christians believe that God is good and that he's just. 
On the other hand, this is very controversial. As I said last week, in the Bible, you will not find one person in the Bible who, you know, seriously entertains doubts about God's existence. There is nobody in the Bible who, you know, who wrote any of the biblical books who says that maybe God doesn't exist. However, what you will find in the Bible are people who question God's goodness or his justice or his concern for us. This is the sort of thing that you see all the time. In fact, especially in the Old Testament. So let's look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament and let's see this question about the justice of God. Let's go to Genesis chapter 18. So what happens? What's, what's happening here? God has called Abraham out of the land of his forefathers. He's told him to go towards Canaan, towards a land that he will inherit by God's promise. Uh, and God told him, even though he doesn't have any children and even though he's very old, uh, God promised Abraham that he would have a son. Okay, so imagine that God appears to one of you now and promises you that in some short amount of time you're going to have, a, you're going to have another baby. Right? That's what Abraham was like. He was an old man, he was, which is not to say that you were old, of course. You're all very but he was an old man. You know, Abraham was advanced in years, uh, to put it euphemistically. And God tells him, you're going to have a child. You're going to have an inheritor. Okay? And your wife, Sarah, who is just, just a little bit younger than you are, she's going to have a child. But, and Abraham believes this. Abraham trusts God. He says, I believe this. I, 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 I appreciate what you're saying. So what happens is that one day, Abraham and Sarah are sitting, you know, it's hot outside, it's probably a Phoenix summer like this, Abraham is sitting outside, and Abraham sees three people coming towards him. And he welcomes those three visitors, and it turns out that one of those persons is actually an appearance of God. And so this person tells Abraham, uh, you know, by this time next year I will come to you again and Sarah will have a child. And Sarah hears this from inside the tent and she starts laughing. Right, because I'd imagine some of you also would laugh if God told you that you were going to have another baby. But it's what happens. So then, they, you know, they, they have this afternoon lunch, uh, or, or maybe it's late afternoon dinner, and then they go, and the, one of the... God takes Abraham uh, from that place, and he leads him towards the area of Sodom. All right, we know about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen to the conversation between Abraham and God. Let's have somebody read... Genesis 18, verses 22 to 26. Go ahead. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. So notice what Abraham, notice how he thinks. He knows that God is the creator of all things. He knows that God is all-powerful and that nothing is hidden from him. He knows that all things are possible with God. And he also knows that because of this, God is the judge of the earth. And God tells him that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness of those cities. But Abraham thinks, okay, God, if you are the judge of the earth and if you're all-powerful and if you know all things, 
Surely you are not going to punish the righteous and the wicked in the same way. Surely if there are righteous people in the city, you are not going to destroy them and sweep them away from the face of the earth along with the wicked. Right? So he is assuming that God must be just. It's not enough to be all-powerful. It's not enough to be all-knowing. God also must be just. He must do things fairly. If he's going to enact judgment, it has to be a just judgment. So this is, uh, even though Abraham did not have, you know, Abraham did not have the Bible. The Bible wasn't written in the time of Abraham. It was written later. So he did not have the Bible. He did not have uh, very many resources available to him. But he understood at least this much, that if there is a God and God is in control of all things and all things come from God, then God has to be just. Because what is the alternative? What if God were not just? I don't want to... I wouldn't want to live in a world like that. So he, he somehow he intuits, he has this sense, God must be just. Okay? We also see in Exodus, chapter 34, this is a very interesting passage in which, uh, you know, don't, don't ask me to explain it, but what happens is God reveals his, himself to Moses. Right? Um, and when he does this, uh, he proclaims his name. So let's read Exodus 34, starting with verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So notice how God describes himself to Moses in this, what is called a theophany, a revelation of God. He says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So God, when he presents himself to Moses, he shows him, I am good, I'm merciful, I am forgiving, I'm slow to anger, but I am also just, and I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished forever. And if we read also in Psalm 103, right, uh, I don't think we'll take the time to read it, but Psalm 103 is another famous one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who, you know, who heals all your sicknesses, and so on. That, that psalm is a song of worship to God for his goodness. So God is good, and he's just, according to the Bible. And yet, if we look out in the world... Very many times we see things happening in the world that make us call these into question. Have any of you ever suffered yourselves or known of somebody else who suffered something that made no sense? Yeah. Children dying. Right? One of my best friends, his older brother, had a baby girl. Um, and not long after she was born, she was diagnosed with cancer and she was uh, very sick for about two years and then she died. And they prayed and they hoped that God would heal her, but it didn't happen. And in a situation like that, you can only ask yourself the question, why? Why does this have to happen? If God is all-powerful, if he's all-good, if he knows everything, why couldn't he have prevented this or at least healed her? 
And I think this is a question also that we ask ourselves when we are struggling and when we hurt and when something bothers us and we pray to God, but nothing happens. You know, it's, it's very fascinating. We have moments where God answers our prayer and we can say like the psalmist, all the nations will come towards you because you hear prayers. But then God, on other occasions, seems not to answer our prayers, or at least not in the way that we would have liked. And the thing that we wanted doesn't happen. And then we wonder, what's actually happening here? You know, all these things that we took ourselves to know are called into question. And we're put in a situation of having to choose how to think about things, how to understand what's happened to us. This in philosophy is called the problem of evil. In philosophy, this is called the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen? If God is all-powerful, then he should be capable of stopping a bad thing from happening. If he's all-knowing, then he should have the requisite knowledge. He should know what to do in order to prevent it or to stop it once it happens. And furthermore, if he's all-good, then he will want to do that. God, being good, would want there not to be suffering, not to be evil, not to be bad things. So then why is there still evil in the world? This is the question that philosophers throughout history, from Epicurus in ancient Rome until David Hume in the 1700s, philosophers, and even today, continue to ask this question. And this is a question that all of us ask ourselves sometimes. Why do these things happen if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and if he's perfectly good? Now, there are very many different things we can say about this, okay? Uh, And we can try to approach this question by two paths. We can try to go... Uh, You might think, for example, the the way of philosophy. What can we know philosophically? How can we answer this question philosophically? But then we might also try to answer this question through Scripture and through revelation, through what God has revealed to us um, in Jesus Christ and in in the Holy Scripture. And so I want to try to approach this question from both points of view. This is a question that probably you guys uh, might struggle with. This is a question that all of us can struggle with. It's also a question that our friends might struggle with. Probably all of us have friends who... We've invited to come to church or we want to talk to them about spiritual things, but they're hung up on this question. Why, is, why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? This is, a, this is a point on which many people stumble. So I think that it might be useful to try to approach this question in both ways. Let's start just by reasoning philosophically. Okay? What can we know simply as human beings who use our reason without making appeal to the Bible, without trying to you know, argue on the basis of revelation, what can we say in response to this question? And interestingly enough, I think that the one response that we can give philosophically is also an answer that the Bible gives. The question is, why is there evil in the world? And the appropriate answer to give, I think, is, I don't know. (laughs) That is the answer you have to give. Right? A lot of times we think that we should have an answer to every question, we should have an explanation for everything that happens, uh, we should be able to make sense of everything. That is not true. We live in a time, especially due to the advance of science um, in the last uh, 150 years or so, where human knowledge has expanded greatly. Okay? In the last 150 years, humans have learned more about the world and quicker than they did in the 1500 years before that. So we live in a society, in a culture, in a time where the expansion of human knowledge is very rapid and very impressive. But because we are managing to do things better and to learn things more easily than we did before, it doesn't mean that we have an answer for every question. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when you first uh, start to engage in some sort of activity, say you play an instrument or you start playing a sport, 
and you get really good really fast. And then you think that you're unbeatable, but somebody else comes along and you know, proves to be a better uh, trumpet player than you, or he's better at basketball than you are, or he, you know, he's a better arm wrestler than you are, or whatever it might be. No matter how smart you are, there's somebody smarter. No matter how good you are at basketball, there's somebody better. And everybody eventually reaches their limits. Well, my suggestion to you is that in the problem of evil, in this aspect of philosophy, we've reached our limits. When we ask, why does this bad thing happen? Why, for example, did my friend's niece die at two years old of cancer? I don't know. That's the only answer that you can give. Now, some people try to go further than that. They want to say, not only that they can give an answer to this question, they know there is no reason why that happened. It was just a totally senseless, you know, inexplicable thing. And if God existed, he would not have allowed it. So therefore, because it happened, God doesn't exist. This, I think, goes a step too far. And we have to become aware of our own limitations when we make judgments like this. This is how atheists, for example, will reason. If God exists, then these evil things wouldn't happen, but they did happen, so therefore God doesn't exist. Now notice what is being assumed in this line of reasoning. I am assuming <clears throat> that nothing in principle could <clears throat> justify this thing happening. There could be no reason in principle, there could be nothing that makes sense out of this evil event, whatever it might be. But I have to ask the question, how do you know that? Right? How, how, how much actually do we know? For example, if I were to say to you that in this room there are no elephants, would you think that that's a reasonable judgment? Yes. Yeah, why is that? Because an elephant is the sort of thing I can see. All right, an elephant is big, this room is not all that big, so if there were an ele elephant in here, it would make its presence felt. Right? Right. There is no elephant in the room. <laughs> you know? So if, if I were to say that there's an elephant in the room, you could go in here, you could take a look around, you don't see it, it's not there. The figuratively, there is an elephant in the room. Yeah, figuratively, there is an elephant in the room, which is this problem of evil. Right? But literally, there are no elephants here. But suppose I were to say to you, there are no scorpions in this room. Okay, and I just take a quick look around like this, and I don't see any scorpions. Does that mean that there aren't any scorpions? <laughs> a scorpion is not the sort of thing that I can see by just, you know, taking a quick look around the room from where I am. Okay? The scorpion is the sort of thing that I have to get down on my hands and knees. I have to look under all the couches. Maybe I turn the lights off and take out, you know, one of those black lights so that the scorpion will glow. Maybe it's hidden, you know, in the cracks under the doors or behind the bookshelf or something. A scorpion could be anywhere, and it's not something that's easy to find. So I have to go looking for it in a very precise way. Now let's take an event that occurs in history, all right? And let's ask the question, why did this happen? If I'm going to know that this event in history is totally unjustified by anything that comes before it, anything that comes after it, where am I going to have to be in order to see that sort of thing? I'm going to have to step outside of history somehow and look at the whole timeline, you know, and see, okay, this event happened here, something evil happened, absolutely nothing that comes before it justifies it, and absolutely nothing that comes after it justifies it, so this evil truly was pointless. But let me ask you a question, can we step outside of history like that? How many of you can suspend, you know, your movement in time and step out and see all of history all at once and make a judgment about the meanings of things? I certainly cannot do that. You know, imagine when you're watching a movie, can you know immediately, just by watching a scene in the movie, what its significance will be later on? No, not for sure. 
Sometimes a scene may seem meaningful to you in one way and then the story reverses and it surprises you. Actually, that meant something else. Or maybe a scene that you thought was significant meant nothing whatsoever. You know, the director's playing tricks on you. We have to remember our limited position. Okay, we are limited beings who move forward in time. And we only see things as they're happening, right? A great philosopher said that life can only be understood backwards, you know, looking backwards, but it has to be lived looking forwards. You know, who can make sense out of the events of their life as they're happening? It's only after much time has passed and you look backwards and you can kind of see why this happened, why that happened, why did you end up here, how did that come about? And even then your vision is limited. Does anybody here remember everything that ever happened to them in their entire life? Are there still, you know, after so many years, are there still things in your life that you don't understand why they happened? Yeah. Why is that? Because our vision is limited. This is kind of a depressing answer. It's not very, you know, it's not very uplifting to be told, why did this evil thing happen? I don't know, and you couldn't possibly know, right? You are, you are not God. It's like Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. This is the, the harsh answer that I think has to be given philosophically. Why do these things happen? Why does God allow various bad things to happen? I don't know. I don't know what happens before all this, and I don't know what's going to happen after it. So because I can't see its relation to everything else, I don't know what sense to make of it. I'm just stuck with something that is confusing to me. That's the nature of things. That is how things are. It's, you know, perhaps not very um, culturally appropriate to be told that we cannot know certain things because we live in a time and an age where we assume that everything is noble to us. But some things are beyond our reach, and this is just the condition that we have to live in. Once more, like Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. We have to recognize there's a difference between us and God. And this brings me to my second point. Even if we could step outside all of time and see all of history laid out before us, does that mean that necessarily we could come up to the same judgments as God? My father was a mechanic for very many years. Okay, so if you put me and my father in front of a car with the hood open, both of us can see all the same things. But do I see exactly what he sees? Do I know all, what all those tubes and wires are the way that he does? If I look under the hood of my car, I am confused. I don't know where anything is. It's not my area of expertise. But he knows. And he knows, you know, if something goes wrong with the car, he knows exactly where to look for a solution and to fix it. So even if I could assume the position of seeing all of history laid out and seeing how all the events of history connect with each other, it doesn't follow that I would understand anything. It doesn't follow that I could see the way that God would see it and therefore make the judgment, yeah, truly, this did not have to happen. God is very different from us. And this is, a, a, again, a point that Scripture emphasizes. Let's open up to Isaiah uh, 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Somebody read those. Go ahead, Rachel. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So notice what God says here. I am not like one of you. I don't think like you, and I don't act like you do. 
This is very difficult to be told, but it's, you know, this is the reality of it. How many of you, when you were married, had a moment where you found out that your spouse is not exactly like you, doesn't think about things the way you do, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, have a conception in mind of how the house should be run in exactly the same way that you do? That happens to every one of us, okay? And we're two human beings. Rachel and I are about roughly the same age. We're from roughly the same area of the United States. You know, we've been alive and we live in roughly the same culture. But even then, I don't think in every, in every way that she does and vice versa. So how much more then when we're talking between God and a human being, the creator of everything, who is all-powerful and unknowing, and you, who are, you know, like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. How different does our perspective have to be from God's? And he tells us, your thoughts are not my thoughts. The way you think, the things that are obvious to you, they are not obvious to me. And the things that are obvious to me are not obvious to you. The way you think I should be, I am not like that. Okay, and the way that, the way that God thinks we should be, we are also not like that. Um, so we have to admit our limits. Even if we could somehow step out of time and look at the whole expanse of history and see all the things that happened, it doesn't mean that we would know how God would judge those things. All right, the atheist will say, if God were here, if God were real, he would not allow this. How do you know what God would allow? How do you know what God would allow and what he wouldn't allow? Do you think like him? You, are you his buddy? <laughs> you know, have you, did you guys grow up together and you're from the same school and you had the same teachers? No. The Bible says everywhere. Who, is, you know, who, who taught the Lord? Who taught him how to create things? Who, 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 consult, you know, who does he consult with? Where did he learn from? Nobody taught him. All right, he teaches and is never taught. So we should, be lear we should learn how to be taught by God. We should learn how to be taught, for example, what are our limits. This, I think, is what we have to say philosophically. All right? Why do evil things happen in the world? We do not know. If God were real, he would have prevented them. You don't know that. We do not know what God would or wouldn't do without him showing it, up, showing it to us. We need God to reveal himself. We cannot just presume to know God. Philosophically, that's what we have to say. But scripturally, and on the basis of revelation, can we say more than that? Yes, we can. The Bible, believe it or not, I think, is concerned with the problem of evil. This is one way of understanding what the Bible talks about. From the beginning until the end, the, the Bible is written as a response to the experience of evil in the world. And it says this. It says that in the beginning there wasn't any evil, and in the end there will no longer be any evil. In the beginning there was no evil, in the end, there will not be any evil. But we are now in this middle, this unfortunate middle, where we at times experience evil. And we're confronted with things that surpass us, that we can't understand. But even in this middle, God has revealed himself and done something to show us what the beginning was like and what the end will be like. And so I will try to explain this very briefly. If we read in Genesis... Genesis chapter 1 describes the creation of the world. Okay, there are very many questions we could ask here about, um, you know, contemporary science and the picture that is given to us in Genesis. Those questions are interesting to some people. I am not convinced that they actually matter all that much. Maybe we can talk about that another time. But let's just take Genesis and see what it says about the creation of the world. God creates on the first day the difference between light and darkness. On the second day, he creates this expanse in the midst of the waters. On the third day, 
He creates the seas and the dry land. And notice what it says. And God saw that it was good. Verse 10. So God, at this point in the creation, God makes things, he arranges matter in various ways, and he sees that it's good. And this is a refrain that's repeated. Then he creates the plants. Then he creates the stars in the sky, the lights in the daytime and in the nighttime. And then he lets the waters swarm with living creatures and birds in the air. And then they create living creatures to live on the, the land. And once more it says, and God saw that it was good, verse 25. And then here is the interesting part. Here is where he creates mankind. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Look at how good God is. He creates us, he gives us a world to live in, and he also gives us food to eat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God created the world and it was good. And there was a fundamental harmony between things. Everything was in its proper place and the human being was placed somehow as like the, the vice regent of, of the created order, created in the image of God and given the responsibility of taking care of this earth and benefiting from it and living in, living in it, filling it and making it a home for himself. This is the responsibility of the human being relative to the earth, according to Genesis, to live in this earth and to take care of it as God's steward. All right, just like, for example, um, you know, the owner of a company might leave a manager in, in charge of a particular store, and the manager has to hire employees, and even when the manager is gone, the employees have to make sure that they take care of the store. That's what God, is, that's what God has done. It's something like what God has done. He's created the earth, and he's put the human being here to be the manager of the earth to take care of it, to live off of it, to enjoy the benefits of its fruits and so on, and to, to live in the earth. Now, does this actually happen? What happens not very long after this in the biblical narrative? Sin. The human being sins. And with the introduction of sin into the world, like Canon Dard was saying these past few weeks, various relationships are ruptured between the human beings and the earth, between the human beings amongst themselves, man and woman, between each human being and his own person individually, and then between human beings and God. So initially there was this wonderful unity that was pervading everything, and then with the introduction of sin into the world, that unity rips apart. And suddenly a man hates himself, suddenly a man hates a woman and a woman hates a man, suddenly the human beings no longer take care of the earth as they should, and even the earth shows a kind of a hostility towards the human beings. This is what we see happens after the introduction of sin into the world. What then is the, the, the essence of the problem of evil? What then is the essence of the problem that we're dealing with? It's that the world is not as it should be. 
God had something in mind at the beginning, and the world is not now like that. And this is what we feel when we feel the sting of the problem of evil. When children die of cancer not long after being born, that's not as it should be. You don't need to be a rocket scientist. You don't need to be trained in you know, school very many years. You don't need to have a PhD to know that this is not as it should be. There's something wrong with that happening. If God were to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and to wipe away the righteous and the wicked alike without making a distinction between them, if he just kills people indiscriminately, that's not as it should be. That's what Abraham understood. Abraham understood that the judge of all the earth cannot be unjust. Right? Things are not as they should be. So then we have a problem. God has created this order, this world, and he's put human beings in charge of it, but they failed. So what to do now? On the one hand, justice would demand that he punishes the human beings and he destroys them. Because that's what they deserve. They've turned against God, they failed him, they hate him now, they're destroying themselves, they're destroying the earth. But on the other hand, God's goodness would not allow for that. He may be just, but he also loves human beings and he loves the earth. So there's a tension here. Like Kanandar was saying uh, last week, I think it was. On the one hand, the justice of God demands that he destroy things because we have ruined this earth. This is one interesting point about the problem of evil that goes missed in very many common discussions. There is a problem of evil where we are the guilty ones. It's very easy to look out into the world and find things that you don't like and to say, God, you know, accuse God because he's allowed these things to happen. But God allows you to sin every day and he hasn't struck, he hasn't struck you down yet, even though he should. If we think about it, think about what sort of a person you are and think about what kind of ravages you would reap, you, you know, uh, what kind of ravages you would make in a perfect world. Imagine God were to transplant you into a perfect world. Wouldn't you ruin everything? I would. Right? We want the world to be perfect, but we forget that we are not perfect. And we would just ruin it again. So there's, there's this problem here. God loves the world. He created it, it was good. He loves human beings. He created them in His image. They are very good. He wants them to flourish. But they've sinned and they turn against Him. And they deserve to, dis to be destroyed. But on the other hand, He loves them. So what's to, what's to be done? How can you justify? How can you reconcile what God's justice demands and what His goodness demands? The Christian answer to this question is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Philosophically, you can give no answer to that question. Philosophically, you're left just with uncertainty. Bad things happen and you don't know what sense to make of it. But in Christ, we've received an answer to this question, which is that Christ came into the world, He took on a nature like ours, and He gives to human beings what only God can give, and he gives to God what he is owed by human beings. There's a two-way, you know, his mediating work is a two-way street. To us, he gives us the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge of God, healing, the Holy Spirit, and all these other things which you can only receive from God. But to God, he gives obedience, um, righteousness, holiness, uh, submission to God's will, which we should have given him, but we could not do. So Christ does what we could not do, and he gives to us what only God can give us. And he does what is really the most wonderful thing of all is he dies on the cross. In the creed we say that Christ came for the sake of, uh, for our men and for, this, uh, for our salvation. For us men and for our salvation. This moment of salvation, the pinnacle moment of salvation, the, the climax of it is on the cross, where he dies. 
Why does he die? Why does Christ die? For our sins, right? And this for our sins, this is very simple. It's three words, but it's so rich and full of content. On the one hand, he dies as a result of the sins of human beings, right? People hated him unjustly and they put him to death. So he dies as a result of human sinfulness. But he also dies in order to make atonement for our sins. He also dies in order that the guilt that we bear before God be cleared on the basis of his death. And if we want to understand this, we can go, for example, to Galatians chapter 3. Let's see how Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Alright, so the law, the law of Moses, which is in Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, and so on. That law says that if you don't do everything that's written here, you are cursed. God has put us here for a certain reason, and if we do not obey God's calling, we're cursed. Now, it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. All right, for why? The righteous shall live by faith. So even the Bible tells us the way of the law, justification by the law, being right before God through the law, that's not possible. You're never going to do it. The righteous live through faith. But the law is not of faith, but rather the one who does them shall live by them. Alright, so his point is that we cannot fulfill the law, we can only have righteousness and, and a, 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 a friendship between us and God through faith. And faith is not doing everything that the law does, or the law commands, because we cannot do that. Notice what he says in 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the situation of human beings, and it's not good. They are cursed because they are wicked and sinful to the core. They cannot obey God. They cannot satisfy God's righteousness. They cannot be pleasing to him. And yet God loves them, and he doesn't want to be destroyed. And yet he, cannot, he doesn't want them to be destroyed, and yet he cannot simply set aside his justice. So what happens is that Christ comes into the world. And he even takes upon himself this curse that we have. He dies in a way that the law considers to be cursed. He suffers what we should have suffered. So that it no longer has to come on us. Imagine what it would be like, for example, you know, in, um, in the great wars. In World War I or World War II or even the more recent wars in Vietnam and in the Middle East. A bunch of soldiers are in an enclosed, you know, an enclosed area. In through the window comes a grenade. Now, they can all die, but one of the soldiers throws himself on the grenade, and he dies, but the rest of them live. In a sense, he took upon himself the death that was coming to all of them, so that they would not suffer it. Okay, this is an, an analogy. This is like what Christ has done. He dies in a way that is cursed, according to the law, so that we would not have to die that law, or die that curse. What was coming to us, he takes upon himself, so that it doesn't come to us anymore. And God's justice is satisfied this way. 
But is that the whole story? Does Christ die and that's it? No. If Christ only died and that was it, it would not be a very good story. But three days later, he resurrects from the dead. Can Christ die now after he's resurrected? No. no. Is he exactly the same as before? Is everything exactly the same about him? No. No, he's no longer subject to death. He is in a new condition. He has his same body. You look on his arms, he has the scars. You look on his side, he has the scars. It's his body. And yet this body is no longer subject to death. This body is now in a, in a condition or in a state in which death is no longer has control over it. He's no longer subject to the things that, he was, that we are subject to in our present state. We can die, he can no longer die. In the Bible, Christ is called the first fruits. All right? He is the first one resurrected from the dead, and Paul calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. And what happens is that when we believe in Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, we are given the opportunity to participate in some limited way in this resurrection life that Christ has. Christ is uh, the, you know, as some theologians put it, he's the inauguration of the new creation. There was the old creation that God had in Genesis. Everything was good, that went wrong. But in Isaiah chapter 65, God says, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. This evil, this suffering, this brokenness of the world has gone on long enough, says God, and I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now Isaiah didn't understand totally what was happening. He could not have foreseen that it would take place in exactly this way, but he had glimpses. Right In Isaiah 53, he talks about the suffering servant who you know, was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for us. And in Isaiah 65, he talks about a new heavens and a new earth being created. What these things meant when Isaiah was writing them and in the generations after him may not have been totally clear to people. But like Christ says, in, or like Paul says, in Christ the veil is taken away and you can understand. The Jews of his time who did not believe in Christ did not understand the law. But when you believe in Christ, when you see Christ, you can understand where everything is headed. There was the old creation, human sin had ruined it, humans had, you know, uh, inherited condemnation. Christ comes and he saves them. And in his resurrection, he inaugurates a new creation. And notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is where the notion comes in. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God sent Christ into the world to recreate this world to fix it, to fix what is broken with it. He comes into the world and he heals the sick, he teaches those who are ignorant, he forgives the sin of those who are guilty, and he even dies for the sake of our sins. He makes atonement for us and he reconciles us to God. And in his resurrection, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. From there, he sends the Holy Spirit and he creates faith in us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He makes it possible for us to begin to live lives that are pleasing to God. So you can see how everything is broken Christ comes into the scene and he begins to fix things, one after another, piece by piece. Those who are sick, he heals. Those who are ignorant, he teaches. Those who are guilty, he forgives. Those who are cursed, he takes the curse upon himself. 
Those who are lacking in the Holy Spirit, he gives them the Holy Spirit. Those who cannot live a life of righteousness, he makes it possible for them to begin to do this. And if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is included in this sphere of activity that Christ is engaging in, it's a new creation. It's so, it's so easy to think about ourselves in these old terms, but there is in the Bible also this new, this aspect of novelty, this aspect of newness. Paul in Ephesians talks about the new self. Clothe yourselves with the new self who is being created in the likeness of God. And in Galatians also, at the end of the epistle to the Galatians in chapter 6, Paul is arguing over the course of this letter why the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. And his point is, with the advent of Christ in the world and the sending of the Holy Spirit, all that is done. That's the old stuff. There is a new creation now. And in this new creation, the Holy Spirit of God is the, the unity of people. There is no more a distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, Greek and barbarian. All of us are the children of God through Christ and we all have this uh, Holy Spirit which Christ has sent to us. The new creation is what matters. And look at what Paul says then in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Being a Jew is not important, being a Gentile is not important. But what? But a new creation. What is important in the scripture, the way that the scriptures respond to this problem of the problem of evil, this philosophical question, is through the idea of a new creation. All right, philosophically, all we can say is that evil things happen in the universe, God allows them, but we don't know why, and we don't know what he's getting at. But we are not left to our own devices. God has not left us in that state of ignorance. He has sent Christ into the world to reveal to us that God loves us, that he has taken our sin upon himself, and he has died for our sins, and he sends the Holy Spirit into the world to begin to recreate us every day, little by little, into the image that he wishes us to have. And because Christ was raised from the dead, we know that we will be raised from the dead also. Christ is the first fruits. The first fruits means the beginning of a longer process. He's the first one to raise, and if he's raised from the dead, then so will all of us be raised from the dead. And one day this problem of evil, which today still afflicts us, because we're in, we're in an uncertain position. We don't know everything for sure. Some days our faith is stronger, some days our faith is weaker. Some days we're confronted with things that really trouble us and make us ask questions. But one day all of that will be swept to the side when there will be a new creation, uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God will be all in all, as Paul says in, in the letter to the uh, Corinthians. Uh, and then there will be no more tears. This is such a wonderful image from Revelation. He will wipe away every tear. There won't be any more problem of evil. All of these things will be passed away. Now, how do we know that that's going to happen? Because Christ was sent into the world and he was resurrected from the dead. He is the, he's the promise from God that we have that this is going to happen with all of those who turn to Christ in faith.